Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options and Global Medical Education Psychiatry and Neurology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Prakash Masan. Today's episode features Dr. John Kane, Chairman of Psychiatry at the Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine, and Dr. Rebecca Roma, a psychiatrist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They will be discussing the relationship of extrapyramidal syndrome, anti-Parkinsonian drugs, and tardive dyskinesia. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Tardive Dyskinesia and Psychiatric Illness. For more information on Dr. Kane and Dr. Roma, along with links to other TD programs, including other podcasts and clinical thought medical commentaries, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say about this important topic. I'd like to welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and and uh, Rebecca, great to see you. So we're going to talk about uh, extrapyramidal side effects and tardive dyskinesia. And obviously, this has become, um, I think, an, an important issue for several reasons. One is we're seeing you know more widespread use of antipsychotic drugs across different diagnoses, um, and um, you know we need to consider the risk of extrapyramidal side effects, the risk of tardive dyskinesia, et cetera. So, so Rebecca, you know, what's your perspective on this? I mean, how how frequently do we see uh, EPS and 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 TD, and are there are there differences between the the medicines that we use? Privileged to be working with you, thank you. And um, my perspective is is that this has become a hotter topic because now we have treatments for tardive dyskinesia. In the past, it was kind of a subject that we didn't really talk about because clearly it was caused by dopamine receptor blocking agents, and yet we didn't have anything to do about it. So, you know, I'm in clinical practice, and I think it really depends upon your clinical setting how often you're seeing tardive dyskinesia in particular. Um, EPS and tardive dyskinesia it used to be thought were only caused by first-generation antipsychotics. But as second-generation antipsychotics began to be used for more and more diagnoses, like you mentioned, whether it's adjunctive treatment to a mood disorder, whether it's you know agitation uh, due to brain injury or due to dementia, we're seeing more and more EPS and tardive dyskinesia. Absolutely. I mean, just not. I'm sorry to interrupt, but just you know, along those lines, it's really been it's been striking to see that only about 11 percent of the antipsychotic prescriptions are for people with schizophrenia. Absolutely. Well, it used to be schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and now it's anxiety, it's insomnia, it's you name it. So. I still think that tardive dyskinesia, of course, and even EPS is more frequent with the first generation antipsychotics. But you know, there was a recent meta-analysis that was performed that looked at incidence. So with first generation, it's about 30%. So 30% of people will develop TD. If they're on a second generation and they've had past exposure to a first generation, that's about 21%. And if you've only ever been on a second generation, it's about 7%. Yeah, and those, those prevalence figures, um, 
you know, although they've come down somewhat, as you, as you said, I mean, there's it's still a risk, even with the second generation drugs. And if we look at, you know, if we look at the incidence, uh, the number of new cases per year, it looks like, you know, with the older drugs, it was running around 6%, maybe six and a half. And with the newer drugs, it's maybe down to, you know, two and a half percent. So definitely a reduction, but it hasn't gone away. And I think there are some some of our colleagues sometimes think, you know, yeah, it's gone away. This, this TD doesn't exist anymore. Well, I also think that, you know, like we're, we've been saying with the use of antipsychotics for so many different uh, diagnoses, now all of a sudden you have a whole new population that is at risk for tardive dyskinesia. And also the, the EPS hasn't gone away either, even though the second generation drugs are less likely to cause EPS in general, there's still differences even among the second generation drugs. Some are more likely, more likely to cause EPS than others, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that also, as practitioners, we need to take into consideration the risk factors of the patients that we're prescribing. So I think the biggest risk factor is probably age. Um, but you really have to look at not only the drug, but at who you're prescribing it to and be able to really differentiate between EPS and tardive dyskinesia. Absolutely. So, you know, I think the examination is key. And, um, you know, one, one thing that I would emphasize is, is some patients who have never been treated with an antipsychotic drug, particularly elderly people, you know, may have some abnormal involuntary movements uh, before they ever receive an antipsychotic drug. And, and even some patients with schizophrenia, I mean, we've seen some young patients who have what appears to be almost uh, extra pyramidal in nature before they ever get an antipsychotic drug. So, you know, we, we really strongly recommend to clinicians that they examine the patient carefully before they give an antipsychotic, because it would be a shame to attribute abnormal movements to the medication when in fact the patient had it before. And I emphasize, particularly in elderly individuals, the, 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 uh, the incidence or prevalence of these abnormal movements that pre-exist exposure to antipsychotic drugs is not trivial. Particularly in people who wear dentures, you know, they, they may have difficulty with ill-fitting dentures, and so they've got some tongue movements, things like that. But even there are these so-called spontaneous dyskinesias in the elderly that we see. So that, emphasizing the exam is important even before you prescribe the drugs. Absolutely. And you see it a lot in patients with autism as well. So you see a lot of tics, but you also see a lot of EPS or extrapyramidal symptoms. And so it's really important to get a baseline. So my recommendation to clinicians and what I try to do is to do sort of an abbreviated examination with every encounter. And in a high risk individual, we should be doing an AIMS evaluation every six months and with lower risk individuals, we could probably do it every year. But as you're saying, getting that baseline level before we even start an antipsychotic is extremely important. But it's hard as practitioners because when we see a new patient, they might come to us not on antipsychotic medication, but it's really hard because of the fragmented nature of the healthcare system to get a good history 
So I've seen people with PD who swear up and down that they've never been on an antipsychotic, but maybe they were in a hospital situation, they were agitated, maybe they were in a rehab facility or you know some kind of detox, were agitated, received Howdall, and they weren't even aware. And now they have TD and it's really hard to get that history to be able to tease out, okay, is this tardive dyskinesia? Is this EPS? Is this something that's already there? And you can see the same syndrome sometimes coexist, which is a challenge. Yes, absolutely. Particularly the older individual, we can sometimes see TD and Parkinsonism, and that can be confusing uh, because we, you know, we know that the the ideal treatment uh, is different for those two conditions, right? For for Parkinsonism, we're going to use an anticholinergic agent, but that might in fact worsen TD. So that differential diagnosis becomes really important. And as you said at the in the beginning, you know, now we have um, FDA approved medicines for the treatment of tardive dyskinesia, which we really didn't have before. So that that uh, you know kind of emphasizes the importance of getting getting the diagnosis right. And I think that that's a challenge when we haven't been used to, uh, we sort of got away from AIMS examinations as we got away from first-generation antipsychotics. And as you're saying, if someone's on an anticholinergic, that can actually exacerbate their tardive dyskinesia, and the VMAC2 inhibitors that are used for tardive dyskinesia can potentially worsen Parkinsonism. So what do you do in a patient that is exhibiting both EPS and TD? Yeah, so hopefully we can we can reduce whatever whatever is causing the EPS. I mean, that tends to be a more acute phenomena. And if we can reduce the, the dose of the of the offending agent, that, that can uh, reduce the, the Parkinsonism, whereas with tardive dyskinesia, you know, reducing the dose doesn't necessarily improve the condition. In fact, it may transiently worsen it. So, you know, we want to try to eliminate the Parkinsonism and then and then treat the TD. Um, so, you know, I think that that is a challenge. But as you said, I think the key is the examination, too. And as, as you said, recommending the AIMS and, you know, people are now wondering, can I do the AIMS uh, using telemedicine? And um, I guess I would emphasize a couple of things there is, yes, you can, but you don't want to focus just, you know, on the orofacial movements, because what we've seen is that, you know, about a third of patients who have TD don't necessarily have manifestations, you know, in the orofacial region. So you do need to look below the head and neck as well. It may, may not be quite as easy to do that with telemedicine, but I think it still is possible. You just have to keep that in mind. And I think as the pandemic hopefully recedes, we'll be able to see patients uh, in person more and make those examinations a little bit easier. But, but it's still, it's, it's not um, impossible, you know, to do an AIMS exam, even, even with telemedicine. Absolutely. Now, what I've found uh, in talking to CMHCs is many of them throughout the pandemic have only been using phone calls because patients oftentimes have not very reliable internet service. Maybe they have no internet service at all. Maybe they, you know, they might have phone minutes. They might not have phone minutes. So 
idea of phone calls um, is somewhat problematic. Yes, that's a good point. Absolutely. It's not a replacement for a virtual televisit. So to call a phone call telepsychiatry is really a misnomer. So what I do, because I do have a few, especially older patients who are very uncomfortable with any kind of platform, even if it's FaceTime. And what I do is I've been asking questions about movements. So as a screening, do you notice any abnormal movements? Does Do other people notice any abnormal movements? It's really important because these movements affect people's social well-being, their emotional well-being, their physical well-being. They're having difficulty, you know, conducting ADLs. So these are the sorts of screening questions. And if there is any positive response to any of those screening questions, then I make sure that I'm either able to see that person face-to-face or that at least we can set up a video chat so that I can do a proper aid. And you emphasize the importance of trying to get the, the perspective from the, the family or, or you know, in other, other people who are uh, observing the patient because sometimes the patient isn't even aware of abnormal movements until somebody, someone else points it out, right? Absolutely. I had a patient... Uh, just this year, who she came back to me from a partial program. She had been in a partial program about eight months, and they had put her on an antipsychotic. It was kind of a stronger dopamine receptor blocking agent. She came back to me, and this is someone I had treated for three, four years. And I, she very definitely had uh, tardive dyskinesia movements of her tongue, of her lips, And I asked her about it and she said, oh, you know, that's just something that I do when I get anxious. And I'm like, no, 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 wait a minute. You know, I've known you for a long time. You have never done this before. And we, you know, eventually got her on medication, but not only are patients not aware, but sometimes they make excuses for it or they don't realize that it can be a side effect of their medication. And they're like, oh, well, you know, it's like biting my nails. And there are other potential causes of abnormal movement. So, we, you know, let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, earlier we talked about spontaneous dyskinesias that may be seen in, in the elderly, but, you know, there are other conditions that can produce abnormal movement. So, you know, we need to think about a potential differential diagnosis. So first, as you said, we should use the aims and we should kind of apply criteria. You know, are, are there two mild movements that are present or there is one moderate movement that, that's present and you know, has the person been exposed to an antipsychotic medication for at least three months? Or if it's an elderly person, a month may be enough to cause tardive dyskinesia. Have they taken other drugs that are dopamine receptor antagonists like metoclopramide? Um, but we want to rule out things like, you know, Huntington's disease, Wilson's disease, Parkinsonism, uh, central tremor, Tourette's disease, uh, hyperthyroidism. Um, now, Wilson's disease is something that's treatable, so it's 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 um, it's uncommon for us, but you know it, it's something that we certainly don't want to miss. Um, so that that's a condition that can cause you know choreiform movements and and marked rigidity and dystonia. But you can do a, a lab test. You can do a serum ceruloplasmin, and you can do a copper trans looking for the copper transporter gene, et cetera. So you know we do want to keep in mind the differential diagnosis. Um, 
And um, it's important, as you said, to do those exams and, and uh, to, to make sure we get input from, from other you know, observers if we, if we can. Absolutely. Sometimes other observers can help you if you're in a virtual setting. They can help you know, position the camera so that you can see people's arms, you can see people's legs. And when you're going to do an AIMS evaluation, especially in a virtual environment, you want to prepare your patient first. You want them to be sitting in a chair without armrests so that you can, in fact, do this examination, whether it's in person or what, because it's so important because it really affects people's daily lives. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about, uh, we were talking about when there's EPS and when there's tardive dyskinesia in the same patient and how we would like to try to lower the medication to reduce the EPS, which then can sometimes unmask latent tardive dyskinesia. Or we could try to switch the medication. But in a few cases, you really have to, you know, try to balance the use of an anticholinergic and a VMAT2 inhibitor, unfortunately, because there are some people that only respond to whatever medication and whatever dose they're on. And it really is a balancing act. Absolutely. Yeah, and let's let's talk for a second about you know what do we do when when we have made the diagnosis or at least the presumptive diagnosis of TD and and now we want to treat that person because as you emphasized earlier you know TD is something that can really interfere with psychosocial and vocational functioning you know you think about somebody uh, in a social situation you know they're trying to get a date or something and they have abnormal movements that's yeah it's not gonna you know make it easier to socialize or they go on a job interview and. You know, the, the interviewer may not even, uh, you know, sort of be aware that they're reacting to some abnormal movements. They just have a sense, well, there's something odd about this person. I don't, you know, it makes me, makes me uncomfortable. So, you know, we really have to try to reduce these movements. And so the first thing that people think about is, well, you know, what if I reduce the dose of the antipsychotic? Is that going to do it? Not necessarily. Or what if I switch to a different uh, medicine? Suppose you know they're on one medicine, I switch them to another medicine that maybe has a lower risk for TD. And even if we try to discontinue the medicine completely, you know sometimes that's helpful, but sometimes it's not. And for somebody who has a, an underlying condition that really needs an antipsychotic drug, we're not going to discontinue the medicine. Some people in the past have switched to pozapine, particularly if it was moderately or you know severe assessed. And I'm a big fan of clozapine, but if somebody doesn't need clozapine for other reasons, now we have two medicines that are approved for the treatment of TD. So, you know, we don't really need to go to clozapine. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because I think, again, when you talk about screening, it's very important that even if these movements are subtle, we're able to catch them early because once they've really set in, it's like you're saying, even if you reduce the medicine, even if you stop the medicine, even if you switch the medicine, sometimes the TD can get worse. And so screening and screening all patients who we have on antipsychotics, young, old, risk factors, no risk factors, is the only way I see to be able to see mild movements, because perhaps if we catch it when it's mild and treat it, 
or even when it's mild, if we lower the dose or switch the medication, we are more likely to have success controlling those movements than once it's gotten moderate to severe. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to just add one other point. When when we think about um, risk factors, you know, you had mentioned earlier uh, older age, but another risk factor seems to be the early occurrence of Parkinsonian side effects. So if I have a patient who's developed an acute dystonic reaction or rigidity or uh, akinesia or things like that, it really appears, or even akathisia, it really appears that those patients are at a higher risk for subsequently developing TD. So if we see patients like that, we want to try to eliminate the drug-induced Parkinsonism as much as we can, but we also want to keep, I think, a particularly careful eye on those patients because they may be at significantly greater risk for developing TD down the road. Yeah, there are other risk factors as well. You know, there are risk factors uh, like comorbid substance use is a risk factor for developing TD. Also, intermittent exposure to dopamine receptor blocking agents is more of a risk factor. And we know with our patients, they're starting and stopping their medications all the time. And that is more of a risk factor for TD than just staying on an adequate dose of an antipsychotic. Absolutely. And, and when you say adequate dose, I mean, we, want, we do want to emphasize trying to you know, use a, a, low, a low dose. You know, it's, it's always hard to identify the minimum effective dose because we're, we're titrating against relapse. You know, that's the only way we know we've gone too low. But, but still, there are, there are guidelines, there are studies that have been done that suggest that, you know, we can keep doses within a, a sort of modest range, and hopefully that can also reduce the risk. And aim for monotherapy as opposed to multiple antipsychotic agents. Absolutely. And let's talk about the, the new treatments that are available. So, I mean, that's been an exciting development uh, in the sense that, you know, we'd, we'd gone for many years without an approved treatment. Uh, uh, people were using uh, tetrabenazine, um, which had been approved for Huntington's, Huntington's, Huntington's disease in, in about 2008. But, but a few years ago, in, in 2017, we saw the approval of two, uh, two DMAT2 inhibitors. And so that was, that was really good news. And um, what's, what's your impression so far about, about those treatments? So my impression has been that all of a sudden, it's easy for us as mental health practitioners to treat a side effect that our medications have caused. Prior to this, I think that many psychiatrists, many providers would refer to neurology. And what would neurology say? Neurology would say, stop the antipsychotic. And we can't stop the antipsychotic because these are life-saving medications. So having a VMAT2 inhibitor it works extremely well and extremely fast. So if you think a patient has TD and you start them on a VMAT2 inhibitor, if it gets better, guess what? Your diagnosis was correct. It is TD. <laughs> so my impression has been very favorable. In fact, I've had you know peers say, how do I use these? And I'm like, it's easy because you don't have to alter their underlying life-saving antipsychotic medication. The beauty of it is they can remain on their current treatment 
That's a very important point, absolutely. And so the studies were done in patients, um, you know, many of whom were taking uh, their antipsychotic medication, and both valbenazine and and dutetrabenazine um, showed really a very uh, important effects. I mean, good effect sizes ranging from you know 0. 0.6 to, to 0. 0.9, and and um, so both of these drugs are approved. Um, Valbenazine is once daily dosing. Uh, do tetrabenazine is twice daily dosing, but um, certainly both an improvement over the tetrabenazine that people had been using kind of off-label. And, um, you know, the studies, I, I think I was very impressed with the way the studies were done um, very, very carefully. They have long-term follow-up to show that the improvements uh, were not only sustained, but over time when patients were followed for, you know, up to a year, let's say, uh, the improvements continued. One thing to keep in mind is that when the drugs were discontinued, some of the symptoms come back. So it's not, it means that some patients are going to have to take these medicines over a prolonged period of time. Exactly. And I think that, you know, the jury's still out on questions like, okay, if we start the VMAT2 inhibitor early, does that change the course of tardive dyskinesia? Or are these patients going to have to be on lifelong? VMAT2 inhibitors? These are questions that I think are going to be researched in the future because we don't know the answers. We only know the studies that were done, which, as you mentioned, were very well designed and robust results, not with all patients, but with some patients, and really adds to things we can do to help our patients. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, as you said earlier, when, when there were no effective treatments for TD, uh, people were kind of less likely to focus on it because I think we always have a hard time, you know, making a diagnosis that we can't treat. Uh, so now, you know, hopefully people will be more proactive in, in examining their patients very carefully. And, and you know, there are, I, there are some patients who are getting antipsychotic drugs who may not really need them. I mean, we talked earlier about, you know, it's, it's the uh, only 11% of people with schizophrenia now. So, you know, we have to remind our clinicians that, that antipsychotic drugs should only be used in patients who, you know, where they're really indicated and really helpful. And when they are used, we, we have to keep, keep an eye out for tardive dyskinesia because it, it's definitely a risk factor. And, and since so many more people are getting uh, antipsychotic drugs, then obviously we're going to see more cases of TD. And some of the patients are being treated with antipsychotic drugs by their primary care physician. And they're not necessarily seeing a psychiatrist, uh, as we, we would probably recommend, at least periodically. What's, what's, your, what's your take on that? Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree that um, I think that as there are more second generation antipsychotics, more and more, you know, primary care physicians are starting antipsychotics. There's a big push because there's such a shortage of psychiatric care. And I think that in particular, where we've seen the most growth of use of antipsychotics is adjunctive treatment of major depressive disorder and in bipolar disorder. You know, it's kind of sad to say that uh, it seems like the use of lithium is going down because you don't have to get levels with antipsychotics. It seems so much easier. But you're right. That leaves more and more people exposed to potentially getting 
tardive dyskinesia. And some of those people, you know, are, are you know, have jobs and, and, you know, are functioning at a high level. And, and, you know, if they develop TD, it can really have a tremendous impact. Absolutely. Because it's like you said already, John, your first impression of a person or that sort of gut feeling is so important in the professional setting. And you're right. Seeing someone with abnormal movements is just sort of unsettling, even if you're not cognizant that you're seeing those movements. So, you know, I think I think everybody, you know, should um, learn how to do the exam. The, the AIMS exam is a pretty simple one that can be done in just a few minutes. And, you know, what I've found is it can, it can be sort of just woven into a routine uh, session with a patient because you're observing the person as they come into the room, as they sit down there, they may be distracted. You can see if there are movements. We, we know that sometimes if we can distract a patient, that movements will be more apparent. Um, so learn how to do that exam, learn how to weave it into your regular assessment with a patient. And we talked about telemedicine and the challenges and opportunities there. And then keep in mind that we do have, have treatments and that TD can present in a lot of very sort of unexpected ways. I mean, we think of the sort of the proto, prototype is, is the orofacial uh, hyperkinesia, but, you know, TD can affect uh, the trunk and the limbs and even the toes. Um, so, and even the diaphragm. So it, it can present in, in very kind of unexpected ways. And any muscle group, any muscle group. Yeah, really any muscle group. So we need to, you know, be sensitive to that and, and understand. And, and as you said earlier, you know, some patients will dismiss it saying, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm chewing gum or something, but the patient actually started chewing gum because they were trying to hide the movement. Exactly. And, you know, I had a patient who had some toe movements and had diabetes and was getting sores on their foot and had no idea that they were getting these sores because of their neuropathy. So it can really be life altering to treat the TD and start these medications. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I hope the audience has enjoyed these uh, these comments. And I want I want to thank you, Rebecca, for participating with me in this. It's always great. Thank you, John. And uh, again, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you very much, Dr. Kane and Dr. Roma. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder to view other programs on tardive dyskinesia, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you.